The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we get into our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. Take a few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this privilege to gather together to study your word and to take a look at the Old Testament and all the ways in which you prepared mankind, the human race, and especially the nation Israel for the coming of Messiah, that we might have a perfect salvation that would take care of everything. And Father, as we study the Psalms, we are impressed with your character and how you are involved in every detail of life, and you are the God to whom we can turn for solutions in every problem and every adversity. Help us understand the things we study this morning that we may have a greater appreciation for you and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We are studying the Old Testament and we have now come to our 15th, 15th lesson in orienting to the Old Testament. And we started a study of the Psalms last, last week. Psalms were written, one Psalm, Psalm 90, was written by Moses, so that was written probably about... 1400 to 1440 B.C. And other psalms, some of them are post-exilic. That means they were written after the uh, Babylonian captivity, after the 70 years there, which ended in 536 B.C. So they were written during that period from about 536 to about uh, 400 B.C. So they cover a wide range, but the majority of them, I mean, the the one author that wrote the most is David. David wrote quite a few. Uh, Of the ones David wrote, he specifically states the historical context in 14 of them. The rest don't have a specific context. Those 14 are specifically related, related to events that occurred in David's life and events that occurred that are referenced in 1 Samuel. So if you read those Psalms, it's important to go back and read the historical context in 1 Samuel to help you understand what the author is talking about and to relate more to uh, how the the principles relate to to our own lives today. I think some of these psalms really touch us at the deepest level of our spiritual life because there, there are events and situations that are common to all of us. And I remember some years ago, and I hope to do it again, to teach through First and Second Samuel and all of those psalms in their historical context. It's a phenomenal study, and it's just a great way of, of personal encouragement because, as I've said, so many of those psalms are written, especially during the time when David, between the time David is anointed and the time David uh, actually becomes king, the death of Saul. And that period in David's life is when he is in Israel, but he is viewed as an outlaw, as a vagabond, he is with his band of mighty men who at times almost seem like a, a band of pirates or muggers. And sometimes you look at, at uh, Abner and, and um, you think that they're just nothing, these generals are nothing but hitmen the way they function sometimes. I, mean, I, I, think, I really think we, we make too much of them. We, we always try to interpret David and his mighty men and the king of Israel and we think in terms of these European standards. But David, uh, 
David goes through a lot of circumstances there as the sort of the outlaw band. He's he's not welcome. He's rejected by his world, and in many ways that that is set up typologically to represent the church in the world today. We are in the world, but we're not of the world, and we are not in our own. We're not recognized for who and what we are as the bride of Christ, as the body of Christ, as those related to the future king. So we are, as it were, living in the world, but in exile. We are outlaws in the world in that same sense. So there are many themes in those psalms that relate especially to to the church. Now, as we got into the psalms last time, we saw just introduced Hebrew poetry, saw that in Hebrew poetry, there are two elements in the Hebrew. Rhythm, which of course relates only to you if you understand Hebrew and can understand all the accent marks and the rhythm and that sort of, and the um, uh, meter of the original language. But the second element can be very clear to readers in the English Bible, and that's parallelism. And we saw the first type of parallelism is synonymous parallelism. The first line states the point, then the second line line repeats or reiterates the first line in almost exactly the same way, just using synonyms in order to build out the picture for us. It's uh, very poetic, the use of a lot of images and similes, and so interpreting poetry is much different from interpreting, let's say, uh, one of Paul's epistles. You have different rules for different types of literature. And words mean certain things in certain contexts, so it's important to understand these things. For example, if, um, if you're reading the newspaper and you see the word ball and you're reading the sports page, you know that that word has a certain uh, denotation. It was referring to a soccer ball or football or baseball or something like that. But if you're reading in the society pages and you read the word ball because it's in a different context, has a totally different meaning. So it's important to understand context and literary type when you get into certain things in, in uh, the Scriptures. Otherwise, you'll completely miss, miss the point. So we have synonymous parallelism. And the second category is emblematic parallelism, which is a little sometimes a little difficult to understand. If it's where a figure or metaphor, an emblem, that's what it's talking about, an emblem, a figure or metaphor, is used in the first line, and the second line then explains or applies that metaphor. For example, Psalm 23.1, we saw the Lord is my shepherd. That is an image. That's an emblem. It's representing the Lord as a shepherd. The second line applies it to our experience, I shall not want. Another example of emblematic parallelism is found in Psalm 103.13. Just as a father has compassion on his children. That's the metaphor. It's the comparison. Whenever you see like or as, it's very important in, in, um, in the Psalms and poetry to understand the difference between simile and metaphor. A simile is when you have a stated comparison, and that means it specifically uses the word like or as, just as a father has compassion on his children. That's the stated comparison. A metaphor is just an implied comparison. For example, it might say the Lord, uh, the Lord wraps his wings around us. Well, he doesn't have literal wings. It's an implied comparison. Uh, just as a father has compassion on his children, that's the image. A father's the image. And the application is, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. That's the significance of emblematic parallelism. third type that we looked at was synthetic parallelism. The first line states a point, And then the second line picks up the theme, one word or an idea, and de- develops or expands it further. And then the fourth kind that we looked at was antithetical parallelism. And in antithetical parallelism, which is common in many of the Proverbs, especially after Proverbs 10, the first line is contrasted by the second line. Now, all of this is important because it helps you to read the Psalms, which are, are very important for us. In fact, I encourage people to read through the Psalms, read through uh, Proverbs on a continual basis. That's very important. There's a lot of you know, crucial things. We'll we might get to wisdom literature and Proverbs this morning. I kind of doubt it. But we might get that far. And it's designed to teach wisdom. It is the highest, um, highest piece of literature in the Old Testament for teaching doctrine. And it is designed to prepare us to live lives of skill. Hopefully someday we'll get to a study of Proverbs. So we have uh, these forms in the Proverbs to understand so that we can read with intelligence. 
And then we have to understand that the Psalms are also written in certain forms, certain uh, arrangements, depending on their purpose and their function. And this also helps us to extrapolate a certain amount of understanding and application from the Psalms. We see this indicated in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 4. You can turn there in your Bibles. It's really good to underline these verses. You can go back and look at them again, put, it, put the cross-references in the margins. Sometimes people get the idea they should write in their Bible. But that is your sword, that's your weapon. You should write in your Bible. You should cover those pages with notes so that when you get a chance and you're reading it sometime or you're talking to somebody and they ask you a question, you'll have it available to, to answer, have the information at hand. First Chronicles 16.1 Now, when we started the study of Psalm, we had covered the history of Israel up to the United Kingdom and David's bringing the ark into the land. And David bringing the ark into the land. David brought the ark into Jerusalem and set it up in Jerusalem and shows his concern for God. And at that time, God in return for uh, what David had done makes a covenant, a royal grant covenant with David. So the context there was what David did in bringing the ark into Israel. Historically, this is when David really begins to formalize congregational worship in Israel. There are examples of psalms before this. David's, I mean, Moses' psalm, Miriam's psalm. There's a few other psalms, Song of Deborah in the Judges. But this is where it really becomes institutionalized as a form of worship. Singing is not mandated as part of worship anywhere in the Old Testament. David develops that. See, God gives us X, Y, Z basics, and then we're to utilize everything that God gives us and develop from there. We don't just stick with the basics. So the Psalms are the Old Testament hymn book for the nation Israel in praising God. And David is the one who develops all of this. Now, we see this indicated right here in this passage in 1 Chronicles 16, 1-4. And they brought in the ark of God and placed it inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. This is the, uh, the offering of burnt offerings and peace offerings was the standard procedure according to Levitical law. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Verse 3, And he distributed to every one of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread and a portion of meat and a raisin cake. This is to symbolize the bounty and the grace of God. And he appointed some of the Levites as ministers. Notice how he is developing worship at this point. And he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord even to celebrate and to thank and it should be to praise the Lord God of Israel. And you have three key nouns there to celebrate and to thank and to praise and that really outlines for us the three major types of psalms. There's some minor categories that are different, but these are the three. And I don't agree with all the translation here, so we'll have to take a few moments to look at what this means in the Hebrew. The word for celebrate in the Hebrew is lahazkir. The L-E in English, it's a lamed of purpose in the Hebrew, it just is what's translated to in the English, to celebrate. The, the main verb here is haskir, which is a hippial infinitive of zakar, which means to remember. Zakar means to remember, and it, the sense is to remind God of something. It's not to celebrate. It means to remind God of something, to bring something to his memory. Now, that, of course, is an anthropopathism. God is omniscient. God knows all the knowable simultaneously, which means there never was a time when God didn't know everything there is to know. So God doesn't forget things. But from our experience and from our perspective, sometimes we think God has forgotten us. We're in this situation of adversity. We're in a testing situation. We're going through misery. And we've been praying for day in and day out for some sort of relief from heaven or God to do something. Nothing happens and we think God's forgotten us. So from our perspective, in the midst of adversity, we want to remind God of our affliction so that God will hurry up and do something. Now, this comes across, and the, the modern terminology is the, that relates to this is the lament psalm. That's the category, a lament psalm. For the psalmist brings his lament to God. That's the technical phrase that, that is used. Now, two psalms, Psalm 38 and Psalm 70, both have this word, lahazkir, in their heading in the Hebrew. 
indicating their type, but there are many more. In fact, the majority of the Psalms, at least in the first hundred Psalms, the majority of them are lament Psalms of one type or another. And that's important for us because it is a prayer in the midst of adversity. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I ought to ask for a show of hands for how many people have never prayed in times of adversity. Nobody raised their hand. We all do that. Now, how do you learn to pray in times of adversity? You go to the Psalms. That is our model. And if you look at the Psalms, what has happened is that the psalmist has sat down and he has analyzed his situation in light of doctrine and he is crafting a prayer based on knowledge of doctrine. These are not off-the-cuff, Lord, deliver me kind of foxhole prayers. These are well-thought-out, logically-developed arguments in order to impress God with the gravity of the situation to bring to bear doctrine that is applicable to the situation related to God's character and God's promises and then to call upon God on the basis of who He is and what He's done or promised in the past to act on our behalf. It changes the whole, it'll change the whole nature of your prayer life if you read the Psalms as prayers and understand them in light of our common circumstances. The second category of prayer, I mean of, of Psalms, is a, is a thanksgiving psalm. A thanksgiving psalm. The word translated thank in 1 Chronicles 16 is lahodot. Lahodot. Once again, you have the lament of purpose there, and it's a Hippio infinitive construct from yada, uh, which means to know in the cow stem. Hebrew is very different from English, if you didn't know. It reads from right to left, it reads backwards. I'll never forget after about. I took first year Hebrew in summer school, which is intense. And about the end of the first week, I was driving up to an intersection. I couldn't figure out why that stop sign said pot. Just a whole new way of looking at life, backward. In the cow stem, it has various stems, and each stem has different meanings. In the cow stem, the basic root, which is the root stem, means to throw or to cast. But in the hyphial stem, it means to give thanks. Yada means to proclaim, to confess publicly, or to announce publicly what God has done. So these Thanksgiving Psalms were written out to be sung in public or to be read in public as a public proclamation of how God answered the prayer in the lament psalm. It's just the opposite. The lament psalm goes to God and says, Lord, I'm in this circumstance. This is what's happening. This is what I call upon you to do. I trust you to do it. And then in a Thanksgiving psalm is the response. God now has, has answered that petition and now you publicly acknowledge how he answered that prayer. It was done often in assemblies or on feast days and it was they were very specific. This is exactly how God answered prayer. It's not just general, well, God answered prayer. I prayed for this. It's a very specific statement of how God intervened in the circumstances of life in order to answer that prayer. Now, there's some churches who do this a lot and this is a common practice and, and I think it's beneficial at times. I don't like to do it for one reason. I find that most people are so superficial and in their prayer life that they sit around with inanities and bore everybody to death. And secondly, I find that there's usually a half a dozen people in any congregation who don't have enough social skills and they dominate with stuff that bores people and, you know, God answered my prayer and my car didn't break down on the way home kind of thing. It reduces Christianity to such a superficial level and that's a reflection of our superficial society. So I usually get would rather focus on doctrine than bore everybody with things like that. But every now and then at Thanksgiving or other times, those kinds of things are helpful and beneficial in a congregation so we are encouraged by how God is acting in the lives of people. And if we were to do that, I would expect people to think seriously and profoundly about what they were going to say ahead of time. Trouble is, that usually doesn't happen. Now, the third category is praise psalms. Praise psalms, lahalel. And the, once again, you have the Lamed, infinite, Lamed uh, of purpose to praise God. And Hallel means to really to brag about God. It's a more general term. A praise psalm is different from a thanksgiving psalm. A thanksgiving psalm focuses on specifics and a praise psalm is very general. You focus on who God is, what He has done. You extol God for His attributes, for generally what He has done in your life and what He has done in the nation. So it is non, not as specific 
as a thanksgiving psalm. So these three categories relate to the three major categories of psalms. Lament psalms, thanksgiving psalms, and praise psalms. So let's look at these individually and see what characterizes them and how uh, they can, we can read the psalms with a little more intelligence. A lament psalm usually has five sections. Now, sometimes it has four. Sometimes they're in a different order than this. Sometimes it's very, one of these sections may be very brief. The introductory cry to God may be nothing more than, Oh God, the first part, the first two words in the first line of the psalm. But usually the first part is an introductory cry to God. Secondly, there is a lament section. And sometimes the lament section may be broken into two parts. You may have a, an introductory summation of the lament in the second or third verse, and then it's expanded later on in the psalm. Sometimes it may all be in one section. Then there is a petition, two or three verses where the psalmist outlines what his request is, how he is calling upon God to act on his behalf. Then there is a confidence or trust section. And usually what happens as you read through the psalm, you see the psalmist's focus shift. And this is so important. This is what happens in our own experience so often. We focus on the adversity, we focus on the pain, we focus on the misery we're going through, and then we sit down to pray and we call upon God to do something and we begin to focus on Him and our, shift, our focus and our mental attitude focus shifts from being self-absorbed with our problem and adversity to focusing on the great God of heaven who created heavens and earth who is greater than all problems and all circumstances and then we know that we can come to Him and with confidence and trust because He will solve all the problems. So there is a confidence or trust section and then there is usually a conclusion where the psalmist has a, a vow of praise that he will go public with his praise that if God, if God, if you answer this, then I will praise you in the temple. I will offer sacrifices. Uh, I will make this vow and fulfill it. It's not a bargain with God. It is merely a statement. It expresses how important this is to the psalmist. It is, he's not saying, Lord, if you do this, then I'll do that. God can live for eternity without our, our praises. But what he is saying is, this is so important to me that this is what I will do if you answer my prayer. Now, there are two types of lament psalms. There are communal laments and there are individual laments. Communal laments would be found in Psalm 44, Psalm 74, 79, 80, and 83. I'll read those again for you. Communal laments, Psalm 44, 74, 79, 80, and 83. There's many others. A communal lament is where it is the nation that is bringing its lament to God. An individual lament will be found in Psalm 3, 4, 5. Many of the early Psalms, almost every one of them is an individual lament. Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 9, 10, many others. Psalm 56 is one of my favorite individual lament psalms. Turn in your Bibles with me. Let's just read through Psalm 56 and pick up some of these, these themes. See how this relates to our own life. Psalm 56. This psalm is one of those that has a specific historical situation. You read in your Bibles that there, like there's a, there's a uh, note at the beginning of the, of the psalm for the choir director. These are musical notations in the Hebrew Bible. This is verse 1. This is, just a, this is not something that the editor to your Bible has put in there for your uh, elucidation or information. This is the inspired Word of God just as much as anything else. For the choir director, according to... Yonat Elim Rechokim, which was probably the tune that they used, the name of the tune that this was to be sung to. A miktam, miktam is a form of a psalm, a miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So the Philistines are the enemies of Israel, and this is just prior to Saul's defeat and suicide. But David is uh, seized by the Philistines. He's really left the land and he's, he's tried to compromise with the Philistines. They're getting ready to invade the land. They think David is going to be, betray them, so they uh, capture him. So David is in dire straits. He may lose his life. It's a serious situation of adversity. We may find ourselves in similar type situations. It doesn't have to be identical, 
but we are faced with, with hostility, with people who do not understand us, people who have our, our worst interests at heart. They want to destroy us in one way or another, whether verbally or some other means, maybe uh, someone at work, workplace, something like that. And that's how we can relate these themes to our own life. We see at the beginning the introductory cry to God in the first verse. Be gracious, O God. That's it. That's all that you have in terms of that introductory cry. Once we see that, we know immediately that we must be dealing with a lament psalm. Be gracious, O God. This is his cry. The, the command, which, I mean the, the request to be gracious, is really a, a, a foreshadowing of his petition for God to treat him on the basis of grace. He says, Be gracious, O God, for man has trampled upon me, fighting all day long he oppresses me. My foes have trampled me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. And we see there the, uh, in his expression of his lament in those first two verses. And then we, have a, we see a shift begin to take place in verse 3. It's still part of the, the lament. He says, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in thee. So here we have a, a minor uh, confidence expression here in ver- verses 3 and 4. You have lament in the first two verses, confidence in 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in thee. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? See, he's getting the divine viewpoint all of a sudden. He's beginning to focus, compare his problem with God's omnipotence, and his problems all of a sudden begin to vanish. And then he goes back to his lament. All day long they distort my words and all their thoughts are against me for evil. See, what's happening is that, that David has really, because of Saul's oppression, David just finally left the land and is trying to live with the Philistines. I think he's out of fellowship at this particular time or, or part of the time. All day long they distort my words. They're, they're accusing him of treachery, that if they fight with Israel that David would turn against them and, and they misunderstand David's David's motives and his thinking. So they are, he's the victim of the public lie. All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack. They lurk. Notice the, Im- the heavy imagery here. They watch my steps and they have waited to take my life. Because of wickedness, cast them forth. This is petition. Now starting in verse 7. Because of wickedness, because of their wickedness, cast them forth. He calls upon God to to judge them and bring discipline upon them. In anger, put down the peoples, O God. Notice how that is synthetic parallelism. You have the main thought, because of wickedness, cast them forth. And then he expands that idea in the second half. In anger, God, put down the peoples. Verse 8, Thou hast taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? And this is a in the in the... Ancient Near Eastern culture, it was very, they would have tear bottles, very small little bottles. And at a funeral, when people would mourn, they would capture their tears in these little bottles as a memorial to the grief for the person who was lost. And it shows tremendous attention and concern for the individual who has, has died. And so here, David is recognizing the compassion of God, that God is one who would care about every tear that falls from our eyes. Put my tears in thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? That God has a complete record of all of our sufferings and nothing goes by that he does not pay attention to. Then my enemies will turn back. Verse 9, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. Notice his statement of confidence and trust at this point. He is shifting back to a confidence section. This I know, that God is for me. So he goes to a doctrinal principle. And in God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise. Notice how this is a repetition of what we had back in verse 4. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. So they, they mirror one another. He, he introduces the confidence earlier and then he develops it more here. Verse 11, in God I put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And then we see the... Uh, expression of vows of praise in verse 12 and 13. Thy vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to thee. I will go into the temple and I will publicly thank you and praise you for what you have done. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling. 
his, he's so certain of the outcome that he states it as if it's a present reality when it hasn't taken place yet. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Now, see, there's a, there's a subtle argument there in that last phrase. The subtle, the subtle argument is, Lord, if you don't deliver me, I won't be able to praise you the reason you have created me is to glorify you in life and in the angelic conflict, and if you let me die, then I'm not going to be able to do that, and if this suffering continues, then I will not be able to fulfill the purposes and plans that you have for my life. See, he's arguing doctrinally, even in that conclusion, he is presenting a case before the Supreme Court of Heaven to act on his behalf. So these are not just randomly thrown out little statements by somebody who's going through some sort of trouble. Now, for a communal lament, one that relates to the nation as a whole, let's look at Psalm 44. Psalm 44. Turn back a couple of pages. This takes place when the armies of Israel... We don't know exactly when this happened. There's no specific historical notation here. The first verse in the Hebrew reads, for the choir director, a maskeel of the sons of Korah. Now, we have no idea when this took place at all. It's, it's uh, unknown. There's no, nothing definite there. Just at a time when the armies of Israel have gone forth to do holy war. Now, we studied the concept of the ban and the holy war as God decreed it when Israel went into the land under Joshua, that they were to wipe out everybody that God went forth as the Lord of the armies, the Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts literally the Lord of the armies, that He is the general and He would give them victory as long as they did battle according to the principles in Deuteronomy, which means that they obeyed God uh, fully. Now, this is uh, the backdrop for understanding this. They have gone forth to do holy war in accordance with Deuteronomy 24 and they have suffered an incredible defeat. They have been wiped out. They've had tremendous loss of life. And they return to Jerusalem and go to the temple in order to bring their petition and lament before God. As we look at this psalm, we'll see some interesting things about the psalms. We'll see that as a lament psalm, it has a confidence section, a lament, a petition, uh, praise, which is an extension of the confidence. But there's no introductory petition like we had in Psalm 56. Now, this psalm is also very well crafted. It tells us that this, once again, that when people prayed before God, they treated it as something serious. And they would sit down and think about what they were going to say, write it out, and arrange it in a particular manner. This, in the Hebrew, the way this is built is like a ziggurat. A ziggurat was a man-made mountain that had various, like a step pyramid that would take one up to God. And so the focus, as the eye looks at a pyramid, the eye is drawn to the pinnacle. So everything in this psalm draws to the last section. It's laid out like this. The confidence section, has the first eight verses from one through eight, expresses the confidence in God. In the Hebrew, there are ten lines of poetry. And then, and, and then you move from confidence in verses eight, which looks back in time, to a lament section in verses 9 through 16. And 9 through 16, you go, you have eight lines of poetry. So the confidence section has ten lines of poetry. The lament section has eight lines of poetry. Then there's sort of a protest section. Lord, why did you do this? In verses 17 through 22. And that has six lines. So you move from a ten-line section, eight-line section, six-line section. And then at the top of the petition, you, at the top of the psalm, you have the petition in verses 23 to 26, which has four lines of Hebrew poetry. So everything is designed to, to focus our attention on that final petition in the last, uh, last four verses. So let's just kind of read through it and see how, how this is arranged. starts off the first section of eight lines, really is divided into four, two four-line sections, and looks back on how God has worked in the history of Israel. Apparently this took place sometime in Israel's history before they were taken out under divine discipline in 586 B.C. We don't know when, but they are looking back at that time when God gave the armies victory under Joshua when they initially went into the land. That's the, that's the background. 
44.1 We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days in the times of old. See, if you think about this, this is probably written three or four hundred years after Joshua took the army into, into the land. They are relying upon the same doctrinal, written doctrinal information we're relying on in Joshua. They're looking at the same Bible we're looking at. They're looking at Joshua and they're saying, we have this written record of doctrine here that teaches us that God gives us victory in the land. They're no different from us. 500 years, three or 400 years removed versus 2,000 or, or 3,000 years is not much difference. They're still looking back at that same written record. We have heard. We have the, the Scriptures that teach us this. Our fathers have told us what work thou didst in the days in their days, in the times of old, how thou didst drive out the heathen with thy hand and plant them, how thou didst afflict the people and cast them out. For they, uh, let me see, I left, think I left a line. That thou didst afflict the peoples, that thou didst spread them abroad. For they got not the land in possession by their own sword. I think I use a King James version on this. I just realized it. For they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them. But thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance, because thou hast a favor unto them. Notice how there's a rehearsal and confidence of just as you delivered them in times of old, why you should be delivering us in present time. You're still the same God of omnipotence. Verse 4, Thou art my King, O God, command deliverances for Jacob. So it's a strong statement of confidence. Then verse 5, Through thee will we push down our enemies. It shifts from past to present. You did this in the past, so you should be doing this in the present. Through thee will we push down our enemies. Through thy name will we tread them under that rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, neither shall my sword save me. That doesn't mean that they won't engage in battle. It means that their reliance is not upon the human viewpoint, military accoutrements and training. Ultimately, their confidence is in God, not in their own tactics or skill with weapons. Verse 7, But thou hast saved us from our enemies and hast put them to shame that hated us. In God we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever. So there's this shift in confidence you find often in the Psalms where the psalmist focuses so intensely on the character of God that even though God has not yet delivered, he expresses the confidence as if God has already delivered and given victory. And then in the next section, we break from verse 8 to verse 9, expresses the, the lament of the psalmist. Yet, yet thou hast rejected us and brought us to dis, dishonor and does not go out with our armies. This is the problem, Lord. Why were we defeated? We can't understand this. How many times in our lives do we feel like we have done everything right? See, they're not like the army at Ai where Achan was, and we studied Achan, studied that a little bit when we went through Joshua, how Achan kept back from the Lord. He had, instead of destroying everything at Joshua, he had captured some booty, and God had said to destroy everything, so Achan kept a few things back and when they initially did battle at Ai, they were defeated and they had to go through the entire camp of Israel till they found who had, in our experience, would be unconfessed sin, who was not obeying God. And because that one person had not obeyed God, they had suffered a massive military defeat. Well, what they're saying in Psalm 44 is, Lord, we've done everything right. We don't have someone like Achan in our midst. We've been trusting you exclusively and yet we went down with this incredible defeat. We don't understand it. Now, how many times in our experience do we feel as if not only is God not home, but He hasn't been there in a long time? And we just go through that suffering for week after week after year after year after year and continue to petition God, why aren't you there? So this is, these kinds of, of thoughts are common to believers throughout all time and, and the psalmist recognizes this and we can relate to this. Lord, you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor. We don't understand it. We're, we're your people. And you don't go out with our armies. That, that has caused us to turn back from the adversary. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. Verse 11, Thou dost give us a, as sheep to be eaten and has scattered us among the nations. 
Thou dost sell thy people cheaply and hast not profited by their sale. What, what benefit has this been? The army has been humiliated and because the, the Gentiles know that, that you are our God, they have heard all of the stories about our deliverance from, from Egypt and they've heard about the remarkable things at Jericho and at Ai and all of these things in the past and now we're defeated. What's the subtext here? Lord, when we're dishonored like this, you're dishonored like this. They're arguing, there's a subtext of arguing doctrinally. God, as, as we prosper, you are honored. As you prosper us, you are honored. So it's very God-centered. They're not, they're not looking at this simply from, from the self-absorption of their own defeat. They, they are convinced they've been applying doctrine. I'm convinced that they're not out of line at all. But this is just relating that oftentimes God and His plans and purposes for our lives works quite differently from what we expect. And sometimes we're confused and we just don't know what the answer will be until we get to heaven. Verse 13, Thou dost make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. Thou dost make us a byword among the nations. They talk about us all the time. They're running us down. Everybody's on the front page of every newspaper uh, around the world, the New York Times and the London Times, all of them are talking about how God really doesn't care about Israel anymore, so maybe God doesn't exist. Thou dost make us a byword among the nations a laughing stock. See the synonymous parallelism? Thou dost make us a byword among the nations a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me. They're ashamed, they're embarrassed, they're in, in grief for the loss of their comrades. And my humiliation has overwhelmed me. Again, synonymous parallelism. Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. So they are continually being attacked. Now, the next six lines in the Hebrew, verses 17 through 22 in the English, develop the protest. Lord, how could you do this to us? We've done our part. Why didn't you fulfill your part? We don't understand. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten it. We have not dealt falsely with thy covenant. Our heart has not turned back and our our steps have not deviated from Thy way. Yet Thou hast crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Verse 20, If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God like, like Ai where there was idolatry in the camp, would not God find this out? For He knows the secrets of the heart. But for Thy sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, Paul pulls this right out of this obscure psalm, was an obscure psalm to most of us, and uses it to describe the rejection that he encountered in the mission field. So we can see that, that like in Romans uh, 8.36, that, that Paul uses this, just the Holy Spirit uses this to apply to his current, to a current situation that sometimes we feel as if God has just deserted us. And the issue is the test of endurance. Are we going to continue to trust God in the midst of overwhelming adversity again and again and again, even though it seems as if God is far from us and God has deserted us? And then we come from verses 23 to 26, the last four lines of Hebrew poetry which express the petition. Arouse thyself. Why dost thou sleep, O Lord? Notice the use of anthropopathisms here. God doesn't sleep. God is not far from us. But he uses this imagery in order to express what is going on in, in, what, in, in human terms, we feel as if uh, God is, is sleeping or God is not listening. Awake, do not reject us forever. Why dost, why dost thou hide thy face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. This is an expression of their, their humiliation, their depression, their frustration, their anxiety. They're being honest See, it's not, they're not being emotional here. See, emotion is when you have these emotions and then you let them control your thinking and run away with you. But they are being honest with their emotions. See, some people think that when, when I talk about emotion that you shouldn't be emotional is that when things are going bad and you feel depressed, you feel angry, that you just say, oh, I'm a Christian, I shouldn't feel that way. That, that's called denial. That's called self-deception. See, they recognize that these emotions are being brought into their soul, but they are dealing with them Biblically, See, that's it. sometimes we go through what I call an emotional test. You may feel depressed. You may feel discouraged. 
the issue is what are you going to do with those emotions? Are you going to let those emotions dominate you and cause you to go on some kind of pity party where you're self-absorbed and then, you, then you're just going to give in to those emotions and let those emotions overwhelm you and just mire yourself in emotional wallowing? Or are you going to say, okay, there's a doctrinal reality here. I'm going to focus on the Lord and I'm going to recover. I'm not saying I don't feel this way, but, but God is greater and I will recover. And that's what they're doing. Our soul is sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help. Redeem us for the sake of thy loving kindness. Notice that appeal there is to God's character. Lady, loving kindness is a very pregnant word in the Hebrew. That means it's full of nuance and meaning. It's chesed. C-H-E-S-E-D. And it refers to the faithful, loyal love of God based upon His covenant. I mean, it's almost impossible to translate. I think it relates to what I talk about sometimes is the integrity of God, His absolute righteousness, His perfect justice, and His immeasurable love. All of these things are involved in that word tested. They are appealing to the integrity of God now to intervene on their behalf in their circumstances because when they are defeated, it is as if God is defeated. So they are appealing to his very essence as the root of their argument, to his sovereignty and to his faithfulness. One thing is sure for all of us that when we go through this kind of testing that we can rely on the fact that Jesus Christ does control history. We may not understand all of the dynamics, how everything works together, but just as Jesus Christ controls history, Jesus Christ in his sovereignty is in control of our lives. And we know the verses like... 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that there is no testing taken us, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not test us beyond our ability, but will, with the temptation, make a way to escape that we can endure. God controls history. He is in control of the test in our life, and he does not go to sleep or turn his back on us, but that is part of the test, whether we are willing to hang with him even when he does not run at our beck and call. So those are lament psalms. We looked at individual lament in Psalm 56, a communal lament in Psalm 44. Now let's look at a thanksgiving psalm. Thanksgiving psalm is also called psalms. Their thanksgiving psalms are also called psalms of declarative praise. Psalms of declarative praise. And I said it comes from the Hebrew word yada, which indicates a specificity that the psalmist now has had his lament answered, and so he is going to acknowledge how God has answered his prayer. We see this in Psalm 21, Psalm 30, Psalm 32, Psalm 34, Psalm 40, Psalm 66. The psalmist acknowledges specifically how God has answered his prayer. There are, again, five elements that are characterized a thanksgiving psalm. First of all, there is a proclamation to praise God. The psalm begins with a proclamation to praise God. This may be followed by an introductory summary of what God has done on the part of the petitioner. Then third, there is a description of the deliverance, how God has delivered the individual. Fourth, there is a renewed vow of praise. And fifth, there is a call or instruction to praise God. Now, all of these elements may not be present in every psalm. They are generally, these five generally are in most psalms. They may be in a different order, but these are the elements that we find in a praise psalm. So let's turn and look at Psalm 40. Turn back a couple of pages to Psalm 40, which is a declarative praise or thanksgiving psalm. For the choir director, a psalm of David. It begins in the first verses. First four lines, four verses, look back as a report of God's deliverance for the psalmist. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And he put a new song in my mouth. This is what he will develop in the course of the psalm, is this new song that he has put in his mouth. He puts a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. 
then we come to the direct address to God. See, what he says here in verse 3, let's back up a minute. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. So there is a purpose to this in that it encourages other believers with how God has worked in our own lives. In verse 4, How blessed is the man who has made Yahweh his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. And here we see the typical response for many in adversity is to try to utilize some human viewpoint technique or skill or something that seems to work for everybody else, whatever the popular method is of of the moment, in order to solve life's problems. That in contrast, the blessed man, the spiritually mature man, is the one who exclusively relies upon the Lord in contrast to the one who turns to the proud. So here we see a antithetical parallelism. God is addressed in verse 5. Many, O Lord my God, are, are the wonders which thou hast done. It's a focus on God and his historical, or his workings in history. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which thou hast done in thy, thy thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. And then we see the word of praise in verse 6. Sacrifice. Sacrifice and meal offering thou hast not desired. My ears thou hast opened. In other words, I didn't understand doctrine. I really didn't understand how to look at life from divine viewpoint, but you've taken me through this adversity and affliction and I have seen your power. I have seen your grace in the answer and now... My ears have been unplugged and I'm ready to listen to your word and to take in doctrine. I'm ready to focus on make divine things my priority and not live life on my agenda. My ears thou hast opened, burnt offering and sin offering thou hast not required. The emphasis is on what's going on in the soul, not simply the overt ritual. Remember, ritual without reality is meaningless. This is the same idea here of sacrifice of the life that we have in Romans 12.1 where Paul writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. So we are to make the life... Our, this is when you get to that point in your spiritual life, when you begin to understand that, that doctrine is a way of life, it's not just something you do once or twice a week, it's not just some intellectual exercise. But doctrine is a way of life that has the highest priority and nothing else matters. Everything else takes second place. Verse 7. Now I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O God. Notice how this is picked up and applied by the Holy Spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of what, uh, what's found in Messianic Psalms, which we'll get to in a minute. Verse 8, I delight to do thy will, O O my God. Thy law is within my heart. And then he expresses the new petition, starting in verse 13. Let's just skip down. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored. So he has had one petition. He praises God for answering it. And then he shifts to a new petition that is expressed in verses 13 through 17. Incidentally, the Holy Spirit seems to come along and pick off these five verses at the end and make that petition the opening petition of a lament psalm in Psalm 70, verses 1 through 5. We have lament psalms, thanksgiving psalms, and then the next category is the descriptive praise psalm. This is more of a general praise of God, focusing on His character uh, there's a three elements that you see in a praise psalm. There's the call to praise, a expression of the cause for praise, and then a renewed call to praise. Examples are in Psalm 33, 36, 105, 111, 113, and 135. Psalm 33, 36, 105, 111, 113, and 135. Let's look at Psalm 117. Shortest chapter in the Bible, shortest psalm in the Bible. There is a call to praise. Psalm 117.1 Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud Him, all peoples. You see the 
synonymous parallelism, the call to praise, it's a command. In the Hebrew it is the verb halal, which means praise, to give praise to God. This is a halal psalm. So that the word is halal, and when it is in the imperative mood, conjoined with its object God, or Yahweh here, the command is hallelujah. It is a command to praise God. And then the synonymous parallelism, laud him, all people. We have the cause for praise in verse 2. For his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. We should praise God because his faithful love, this is Hesed again, for his faithful covenant love toward us is great. It's immeasurable. We can't, we can't fathom it. God is always faithful. He never deserts us. And the truth, that is Bible doctrine, the truth of the Lord is everlasting. So this is the cause. Why should we praise God? Because of who He is. And all the nations are called to praise God because God is going to be faithful to the covenants of Israel. And the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles are called to praise God because as God is faithful to His covenant, to the Abrahamic covenant, to the Davidic covenant, as God is faithful to the covenants of Israel, God will bring salvation to all of the nations. So all of the nations are enjoined to come together and praise God. And then there is a renewed call to praise at the end. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Now those are the three broad categories. There's other categories that sometimes uh, people talk about, but that's, that, those are the main ones. Lament psalms, uh, thanksgiving psalms, and praise psalms. And then we come to a particular type of psalm, which are messianic psalms. Messianic psalms are the psalms that have the Lord Jesus Christ in view. In some way, there is something in these psalms that that has its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps in in the experience of the psalmist, he goes through a certain crisis, but he expresses it in hyperbolic language and exaggeration and and, and metaphor that's not literally true of his own experience, but yet it becomes literally true in the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see an example of this. The first type of messianic psalm, first type of messianic psalm is a typical messianic psalm. A typical messianic psalm. This relates to the fact that it has a typology and a type from the Greek word tupos, meaning an example. There's something in this messianic song that exemplifies a particular event or principle in the life of Jesus Christ. There is a typical messianic psalm. There's some feature in the life of the psalmist is intended to picture or portray something in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a typical messianic psalm. Psalm 69. Just skip down. Let's look at verse 5. O God, it is Thou who dost know my folly. Obviously not everything in the psalm relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ was not foolish, did not sin. Thou who dost know my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from Thee. May those who wait for Thee not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek Thee not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. And then it says, Because of Thee, for Thy sake. This is it. Verses 7 through 9 are the messianic portion of the psalm. Because for thy sake I have borne born reproach. For the sake of God the Father and his plan, Jesus Christ entered into human history to go to the cross and bear the reproach, the judgment for all of our sins. Dishonor has covered my face, one of the most humiliating deaths possible in human history. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. This is seen in John 7, 3 and 5 where Jesus' brothers and his family were alienated from him. Not just, not just those, metaphorically speaking, of Israel, but his immediate family was estranged from him. And it, now, David, of course, was the kind of run of the litter and his brothers didn't think much of him, but that event in David's life was nothing compared to the greater event of the reproach and the estrangement from his brothers of the Lord. So this issue is picked up and used and applied to the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And then verse 9, which is repeated also in John 2.17. For zeal for thy house has consumed me. We studied that in John when the Lord goes into the temple and cleanses it. 
zeal for thy house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach thee have fallen upon me. So here we see the full impact in our life of when we trust the Lord and we're identified with the Lord, that we will be alienated, that we will be reproached by those around us, and we can expect to go through that kind of rejection and hostility just as Christ did. But the Holy Spirit picks up these two verses here and applies them specifically to the Messiah where they are literally fulfilled. The second type is a typical prophetic psalm. A typical prophetic psalm. And in a typical prophetic psalm, you find vocabulary that is literally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Literally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Psalm 22 is perhaps the most uh, most clear of these t- uh, typical prophetic psalms. There's something that is said there that is specifically fulfilled in Jesus Christ. David starts, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groans. These same words are picked up and uttered by Jesus Christ on the cross. I think that, that what we have in the, New Te- in the New Testament, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, I, we get the abbreviated version. I think he quoted the, probably the first three or four verses of this whole psalm. Oh my God, I cry day by day, but thou hast not answered, and by night I have no rest, but thou art holy. O thou who art enthroned upon the praise of Israel, and thee our fathers trusted. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. To thee they cried out and were delivered. In thee they trusted and were not disappointed. And we go on and we look at these other things that, that are said here in this particular psalm. And not all of them are particularly fulfilled in the life of David. I think he just uses exaggeration to emphasize them. For example, in verse 12, he says, Many bulls have surrounded me. He's using metaphorical figurative language. Strong bulls of Bashan has encircled me. I think he's using vocabulary that goes far beyond his own experience, but it finds literal fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And the same thing we find down in verse 16 and 17. Dogs have surrounded me. The Gentiles, we think of the Romans, at the foot of the cross. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I don't think David ever had his hands and feet pierced. I can count all my bones. Jesus was emaciated on the cross. I think that the energy just drained him. Uh, they look, they stare at me. They, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast. I don't think this literally happened in David's life. I find no evidence of this anywhere. He's just using exaggeration and figurative language to talk about the misery he's gone through, but yet it finds literal fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And then, finally, we have what's just a purely prophetic psalm, which is, is it's all prophecy, and this would be Psalm 110. Psalm 110, the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Now, David is speaking here and he says, The Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord. Well, David is the king of Israel. Who's his Lord? Who's his Adonai? Who's his master? It must be the Lord. So this is an indication of the Trinity in the Old Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. And this is a reference to the ascension of Jesus Christ and his current session when he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. After the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus Christ ascended. He now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And uh, Psalm 110.2, The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. This is purely prophetic. It is not uh, related to something specifically in the life of David, but it is all related to the coming Messiah. So the Psalms are, are wonderful things. There's just so much we could study in the Psalms. And and I hope that this is something that you can go back and utilize in your own notes and relate to so you can read the Psalms with much more intelligence now, understanding how they relate to our own lives and using them as a format for prayer. Ultimately, I think in the Psalms, everything goes to the Lord Jesus Christ. In some way or another, everything focuses our attention ultimately at the cross where Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Let's close in prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for your grace and for the encouragement we have from reading these psalms and the meditations upon your character, who you are and what you have done in human history. And just as as the writers of the psalms looked back in history to your written word and to historical uh, events that you had uh, displayed in terms of delivering Israel in the time of Moses and the time of Joshua, 
So we too look back to those same events and we are encouraged that the same God who parted the Red Sea, who brought the Israelites out of Egypt and who brought them into the Promised Land is the same God who is our God and who is greater than any problem and any difficulty in our life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would realize that you have solved the greatest problem they will ever face, and that is their sin. You sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, and that by faith alone in Christ alone, we can accept that free gift, and we can have eternal salvation. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy, you have saved us. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to remember the things that we studied today and be challenged by them. In Jesus' name, amen.